0: Welcome to another edition of Global Investment Leaders. Welcome all to another edition of Global Investment Leaders. I am Chaz Burkhart, your host, and the CEO of Rosemont Investment Group. And I'm very pleased to be joined by Kane Brennan, the CEO of the Investment Fund for Foundations, or TIF, as we call it. TIFF is an outsourced chief investment officer business that has been serving predominantly endowments and foundations. It's grown to roughly $8 billion under management and 65 employees, which are spread out primarily in Radnor and Boston with a few other people throughout the country. Kane, thanks for joining me today. Look forward to having this conversation with you.
1: Chaz, thanks so much for having us.
0: Kane, you took the reins from Dick Flannery several years ago, and I'd like to know a little bit more about just your background um, and your perspective on TIFF.
1: So I'm only the third CEO in the history of TIFF, so I'm very proud of that. David Salem, who was our founder, and then Dick Flannery took over in 2003, and then myself in, in 2020, and i hopeful to last as long as those two did. So my background is uh, I started a, as a JD MBA from undergrad and then grad school, and I went on, I started as a corporate lawyer in New York for a couple of years, quickly decided to become an investment banker for four or five years. And then for the next seven or years or so, I was a private equity investor, uh, investing predominantly in the secondary uh, marketplace. And then around 2009, 2010, my former employer Goldman um, asked myself and a few others to, to basically found the OCIO group. For institutions uh, at, at Goldman, and so we did that in 2009, 2010. I ran that for about 10 years as the CEO and the co-investment off, uh, co-chief investment officer, um, and then in 2020, as Goldman says, any any partner that that leaves, they call retiring. Uh, I don't think I really retired, but I left Goldman in 2020 <laughs> to come be the CEO of TIFF. And ecstatic with that decision. It's a it's a great firm, and we have wonderful opportunities in front
0: of us. Talk a little bit about your role functionally. You know, chief executive officer can mean a lot of different things to different firms. Are you primarily involved in strategy, kind of setting the course, new business, um, mentoring? I try to split my time pretty evenly among four
1: things. One is I do think the CEO's you know, main job is to be thinking about strategy and setting direction. So I do that probably 25% of my time. Two is spending a lot of time with the team. Uh, obviously, if you can make the whole team stronger, better, and mentoring and training people, that's probably... 25% of my time. I love talking to clients. Um, and so I'm involved on the commercial side, as you say, that's roughly 25% of my time as well. And then investing, I, I really do like investing. It's a daily scorecard in effect. And so as one of many competitive people here, love to get that daily scorecard.
0: Fair enough. Well, let's now move into kind of TIF today, because as you kind of pointed out, um, it's been through your third CEO in 32 years. And, you know, the earlier days of David Salem and Dick Flannery, and now what you and Jay Willoughby and your colleagues are doing and how you're distinguishing yourself, kind of how are you looking to separate yourself from the competition and build the best TIFF uh, in your mind that can be? I've
1: been here now almost four years. I'd say we're focused on doing three things. One is continuing the path to customization that David and Dick had started. And so when TIFF was initially founded, it basically was you know, one fund. And for a long time, that's what TIFF has been known for. In 2007, which you know uh, some in the marketplace don't know, TIFF started adding uh, new funds that people could subscribe to. And I think as we have evolved as a marketplace and as a firm, we're able to offer even more customization to our clients. And that could be different risk postures, different levels of liquidity, different um, levels of impact. Um, and so we continue to move along that continuum. So that's the first, I don't know if it's a change, but it's definitely uh, focused on being able to customize for different endowments, different foundations, different other other clients. The second is really um, a, a change in culture, um, trying to get TIFF to have more of the commercial bent that you see um, in, in the marketplace. And I think some of the history here is is important. So when TIFF started 32 years ago, as you point out, there were very few OCIOs in the marketplace. It was an oligopoly. Right. There were three or four people, you know, max. And for a long time, it was a marketplace where people would seek out TIFF. You didn't have to have a salesperson. You didn't have to um, do any marketing. People, there were only a few choices and TIFF was one of the earliest you know, formed groups. And so people would come find us. Sometime around right. 2009, 2010, when places like my former employer, um, and other and other firms got into OCIO, there was a proliferation of them, 90 or 100. If you look at some of the um, you know newsletters that go around chronically in the number of OCIO shops. And so that causes TIFF to have to be more zealous, more commercial. And so that's been the second change. We're trying to balance that commerciality with still delivering great investment results. And then the third thing is more of a smaller tactical thing, which is TIFF is historically – Provided full full wallet share services, uh, clients come to us and give us one hundred percent of their money, by and large. Right. And we are their OCIO, as you say. There are other clients that would like to dial into sub asset classes or sub you know parts of what we provide, whether it's private equity or hedge funds. So it's a it's a, a new muscle for us to go out and talk to clients just about slivers of their portfolio where we consider ourselves to be particularly adept. So those would be the three changes that we're working on as an organization. Um, more customization, a little bit more commerciality than talking to clients about pieces of their portfolio as opposed to always 100% of the portfolio.
0: No, I think that's a very good point because, as we've discussed, I've thought of TIFF as a very capable advisory and kind of holistic provider, especially in the alternatives area. Private equity and hedge fund capability is something that you've become well, known for over time, successful at, and are uh, working with clients directly just in those fields. We are. So that's kind of, I guess, leads into my next uh, point, which is really drilling a little deeper on the competition that you touched on, Kane. You've got your pure play firms like Curl Callahan down the road, McKenna, Agility, PFM in Philadelphia. The common fund strategic investment group. I mean, we know who they are. Those are ones of some size and and tenure. And then you've got the you might call them the bulge bracket or the kind of institutional giants like BlackRock and Mercer and State Street. Do you think of competition uh, and 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 when you're doing um, you know you're meeting with your colleagues, you're thinking about growth and strategy and you know, for for better or worse, you need to beat people, as you say, Kane. It's not it's not a question of just you show up and and Tip is the only horse in the race. So how do you think about winning and winning versus those the way I um, kind of segmented the competition by size and ownership? Or do you think about different competitors uh, and your place in the world in different ways?
1: Yeah so so OCIO is it's an interesting part of the asset management landscape because a lot of things have to line up for a client to choose you. It's a little bit we use this analogy it's a little bit like you know in effect a marriage where um, it, there's there's such a deep partnership among the client and the service provider that and and they all look for for some of them look for very different things. And so the the names that you mentioned we we clearly compete with as well as many others and sometimes Someone wants a really local presence, or they want um, you know, they want their OCIO to also be their custodian or their debt provider. And so every client's looking for something different. If I were to summarize, when does TIF win? What do we think differentiates us, you know, versus the majority of clients? I would say it's four things. One is our team. Our team is exceptionally strong. And we have a lot of people that have been here for a long time and believe strongly in TIFF's mission to help our clients achieve great investment results. But I suspect every one of our competitors would say they also have a strong team. Um, They would. (laughs) I'm sure sure they would. The other three things that differentiate us that are more um, structural, one is our investment culture and results. And so if you look at our numbers over the last one, three, five, seven, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, we have Terrific, persistent, and consistent outperformance, and a lot of that is the culture. A lot of that is the way we were founded. A lot of that is because of our client base, um, um, our our model of seeking active returns, etc. So, a big differentiator gets us into a lot of finals is our investment results. Another differentiator is the fact that we have predominantly ENF client base. We don't have only endowment and foundation client base, but in this neck of investing, part of the game is getting access to terrific third-party managers. And a lot of those third-party managers, if they're really good are oversubscribed and they like everyone else in the world, like to feel like they're doing good while doing good. And so on the margin they will let someone like a TIF that has a predominantly endowment and foundation client base in more frequently than they may let some other client type in. So that's a huge differentiator. And again, we're not 100% endowments and foundations, but predominantly. And the final thing that we talk a lot about when we're, we're talking to prospects and, and existing clients is our volunteer advisory board. TIF, when mm-hmm. TIFF was founded 32 years ago, it was founded by Rockefeller Brothers and MacArthur and the Harvards and the Yales of the world. And those CIOs volunteered their time to help TIF achieve incredible investment results. That still happens today. And so on our board, we have board, you can look at our website, but the Nature Conservancy, Common Spirit and UVA and Harvard, Ford Foundation, yeah. Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So these people um, are all industry experts and, and spend their time helping us think about how we're gonna deliver great investment results. So anyway, that's how we differentiate yeah. ourselves from our competitors. Our competitors also are strong and have a lot, some advantages. That's where we think we excel.
0: Well, as to your last point, I can absolutely uh, testify to that because I've been to a few of your client gatherings and actually heard some of your board speak and seen their presence. So I think that probably is a differentiator. But one, Cain, that you did not mention which is something that you've been through recently, which is obviously near and dear to our heart, is the ownership transition from a client slash member-owned firm to an employee-owned firm. Something that I always wondered whether that would happen. Um, never pursued it too strongly with uh, Dick and your predecessors, but I'm very pleased to see that you have accomplished um, making this an employee-owned business which I think provides competitive ballast and um, and, an, and an edge um, and an alignment. What do you think? what were the reasons that you did this and, and talk a little bit about doing it?
1: Yeah and, and I'm sure my predecessors you know had thought about it. there were some files where people had considered it you know 10, 15, 20 years ago and for various reasons decided, um, you know, to go in different directions. So for us on the team here, we, we, a couple of years ago, we started looking around at our competitors and also trying to think about how do we plan for the next 10, 20 years. And it did strike us that we were different than the majority of folks out there. And in some ways lacking one of the tools that our competitors had in terms of retaining and attracting personnel, which was some ability to have, you know, equity ownership. And so we we pursued this this change in, in structure for three reasons really. The first one was to give our our employees the opportunity to have this equity ownership and retain them and 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 as we looked at new at new potential hires out there to have this tool to attract them. So that was the first reason. Second was, and I and I touched on this a little bit earlier, talking about the culture. And as someone said, you know, do you treat a house better when you own it? Or when you're renting it, and so trying right. to get that culture a little more zealous, a little more commercial, um, a little more front foot was was a second motivating factor, and the third was, um, and we may turn to this later. Um, as I said, there, you know, there's a hundred OCIOs now. Um, I think it, you know most people at Harvard Business School and McKinsey would say that's too many for the size of the the market, and so at some point there'll be. Uh, There'll be a consolidation and we just looked at it and said, we, we probably need a, an acquisition currency if we want to be a survivor in this marketplace. So those yeah. were the three reasons. Um, if it's helpful, maybe I'll talk about like how what the reaction's been like. You
0: no, know, I'd like to hear that because sometimes the best laid plans, you know, you, you have it in your mind how you're going to structure and value. Um, and create this sustainable ownership mechanism going forward. And your colleagues may feel a little differently about it. So tell me what it's like working through that so far.
1: Yeah. And, and it was an enormously complex transaction, actually. Um, we we're trying to figure out a way to, you know, respect uh, uh, TIFF's incredible history of serving nonprofits and being organized by nonprofits and add the commercial commercial elements, but Also, um, you know, stay focused on endowments and foundations is the preponderance of our client base. And so there was a lot of structure around it, but I'll give you the bottom line. So we went out to a very broad swath of our employees, roughly 90 percent of the employees that we um, offered, if that's the right word, equity to subscribe to the equity and for us, it mm-hmm. wasn't it wasn't a grant. as people had to put in money, um, and so right. we we're excited about that. You know that hit rate, so to speak. And our clients, we we had to get client approval. So we had you know twenty five. When I talked about the customization, we had roughly twenty five different vehicles or funds that we needed approval. It might have even been thirty. And the round numbers, ninety to ninety five, or maybe even for some of the vehicles, higher than that a percent of clients approved the transaction. So. We were, we were thrilled with that. And, and part of it is because of why. Um, and I think this is important. Like as one, as one um, person says to me, so, so wait, I chose you because I liked your team. And now you've come yeah. up with a mechanism to retain the team and make it less likely that they're going to leave. I'm thrilled with that. But the other half of the transaction, which is really unique. Jazz, which is because the real change of structure here was we created a shareholding structure on top of the entity. And so the money had to go somewhere that people were subscribing to the equity. And so what we agreed with our board was to give it back to our clients in the form of fee breaks. And so I think one of the reasons why we got such high approval is the client said, oh, you're going to be able to... In, in some, you know, likelihood I have a greater likelihood of keeping the team, and I'm going to get the money that your yeah. employees are putting in uh, back in the form of fee breaks and educational things and charitable and charitable donations. This is a wonderful structure. So obviously, nothing's unanimous in life, um, but yeah. it was it was pretty close to, um, you know, a very high hit rate in terms of approval from the clients.
0: Well, look, that's a great win win, and that's a rare uh, occurrence when you can combine those two benefits, thinking about it from the client's perspective, the member's perspective, I, I don't think they ever thought of it as a capitalizable or saleable asset. I think it was something that, you know, there there was, this was the history of it. There was inertia to it. I think in some respects, maybe that's why it didn't um, happen earlier, because this is kind of the way the firm had been run for so long. and And that was copacetic. But All the things that you just underscored, which obviously you're preaching to the choir, um, things that we feel create long-term sustainability, generational sustainability, which is what I think you get, as you very rightly pointed out, Kane. when people buy into something versus when they're given something, they always value it more. Now, the trick is to be able to get the next generation of buyers to believe that you know, TIF three point is just as attractive twenty thirty plus years from now. We'll come back. We'll have another podcast at that point.
1: I, I, I hope so. I hope we're both we're both <laughs> still here doing this. Yeah. And yeah. and and the the hardest part about the tra- the transaction was was really threading that needle of making sure we kept the elements that were really in our minds special about TIF, like the focus on endowments and foundations, yep. this advisory board of experts. The altruistic elements of TIFF, and so we've done that in lots of ways, and we maybe people can go to our website, but we organize as a public benefit corporation under Delaware law. We are, um, as I said, giving a lot of the paid-in capital to our clients in fee breaks and charitable donations. There's also um, a continuing stake that if TIF does become even more commercially successful, roughly 15% of any distributions ever made on equity – Will go to the nonprofit community in the form of educational, um, you know, seminars or more fee breaks or more charitable donations. So, again, it was it was complex. I'm not sure we did everything, yeah. you know, perfectly, but we certainly thought about every element of the transaction a lot.
0: Well, we call that last element long term value sharing, which is something that at Rosemont we are very keen on, and, and ironically, we find very few firms. Um, that are going through any sort of ownership change or transaction are particularly interested in long-term value sharing. They're far more interested in what is my firm worth today? Cash on the barrel head. We'll come back to that in a sec, but we would be remiss if we didn't talk what I think really makes TIFF's engine. And I don't think that all the improvements that you've made to TIF have compromised your investment engine, which you touched on. Talk a little bit about what the firm's investment thinking, um, is today in terms of what you find attractive or just how you're thinking about the marketplace and the numerous challenges, um, that all investors face.
1: So on the short-term side, there's obviously a lot going on in the marketplace. It, it always fascinates me when, when, when people kind of struggle with being tactical, not being tactical and how they hold two very different thoughts in their head. One is, um, don't be tactical. Don't try to time the marketplace. No one can do that. And then at the same time, they hold in their mind, "Oh my gosh, for the first time in twenty years, we have inflation. For the first time in you know fifteen years, we have an interest rate. Um, everything's changing on the commodity side of the of the of the ledger. For the first time in seventy years, we have you know you know in effect a, a war going on in continental Europe and and obviously now in the in the Middle East as well." Um, And so, everything needs to change. And so, the way we're navigating today on kind of a short to medium-term basis is we're pretty flat on equities um, versus our benchmark. We think of our benchmark because it's our risk that we're taking is 65% equities, 35% bonds for the vast majority of our clients. As I said earlier, we customize for clients, but that's the middle of the strike zone. And so, we're looking for opportunities to eventually get longer on equities. We think that will happen when the Fed starts going the other way um, and maybe when they're not fighting the fiscal situation quite as much. So that's point one. Point two is on the duration side, which is, you know, probably the second most frequent uh, question we get from clients. What are we doing in light of the rates movement? We have we have been short duration for a half a decade. So I don't know if that's a tactical view. Uh, but we, we've been, we've been softening that short um, throughout this year. Um, and I think as you start seeing the 10 year hitting five and in particular, yeah. if you start seeing less of an inversion of the yield curve, we will start you know getting even less short on the duration side. Um, and maybe just to hit a last kind of short to medium term view uh, before turning to long term is, is China. We have been overweight China for seven or eight years. We've been reducing that overweight for the last three years. I think most recently we have lost a little bit of confidence in in the nature of their kind of uh, decision making and becoming more of a you know autocracy than than you know broad decision making. We'll we'll see if that's right, but that's a, a view that Tiff is well known for having held, and it's actually been beneficial. Um, but we have reduced that a lot recently.
0: Before you move into your longer term thinking, Kane, talk a little bit more about perhaps some separation or distinguishing characteristics of your client base with regard to what you just said, how strident or aggressive you might be in your asset allocation views here in the short term relative to uh, the five-ish percent returns of of short-term money and some people wanting to stay very conservative. Do you have to debate heavily with clients those that would like to be much more aggressive, those that would like to be Far greater invested in a liquids, or do you find that you know TIF investment thinking um, generally is appreciated and accepted for what it is by your client base? My question is really: Do you have clients that are pushing you hard around the edges of? you know, what they would like to do versus the way your position and the way you think.
1: Yeah. And as I said, our OCIO, is, it's an interesting marketplace because every relationship is slightly different, but, if, and so different relationships, clients have more or, or or less say in kind of the day-to-day rhythm around a portfolio. The majority of our clients, the way we work with them is we spend a bunch of time upfront thinking about if if they have revenue, if there are some sort of, you know. Educational institution, or some community foundation, or some cultural institution, they have if they have revenue. Um, thinking about the consistency of that, the consistency of their fundraising, the consistency of their operational expenses, um, and their risk appetite, the governance they have, the nature of their investment committee or board, the frequency that they want to meet, and we do a lot of that work up front, and we design a portfolio that hopefully over the long term is able to um, target or exceed their investment objectives. So, And then from there, most of our clients give us a lot of discretion to choose the underlying managers, to choose the current positioning, to choose any tactical views. But to give you like a picture, we may have clients that have 85% in equities because they have a very small spend rate and they have lots of consistent incoming revenue. And so they can take and they're comfortable with a lot of risk. And we have others that, you know, because of the nature of their operating results are 50% equities. But from there, they usually let us make, make the decision. I would say around rates and, and what's going on today, most of our clients, and, and again, they all differ, but you know, have some sort of they're they're trying to be perpetual, solve problems that are pretty persistent in the world. So they want to be around 10, 20, 30, 40 years. They want to give kids, you know, scholarships forty years from now, they want to give kids scholarships next week. And so they have a kind of perpetual horizon. Most of them are spending four or five percent. They want that to be real. So they need to get four or five percent plus all expenses plus inflation, and so right. e- even though five is good, it still is an eight. And so for for many of them, they still need to take some level of risk. Um, and as you right. know, Chaz very very well, you know, cash is yielding five now, um, but in six months it might be yielding two. And so you can't. I don't think you can solve a long term investment objective. With a short term instrument, although it, it's it's important today and it you know has a lot of uh, positioning in our client portfolios today, I don't think that's the long term answer. If that makes sense,
0: it does, and that's what I would have thought. So pivot now to your longer term thinking, and you know when you sit around and and uh, really strategize with your investment colleagues, what what are the, kind of the long term ramifications of what we're seeing today and or just what Tiff believes will be more attractive several years out?
1: Yeah, probably three. I mean, we have lots of views, but maybe to distill it down to three. One is we do think equity still should be the cornerstone of people's portfolios. And it's not, you know, for any reason other than equities are monetizing the creativity and hard work of people. That's what causes equity. That's the return on equity. and That's what causes equities to go up and to the right, you know, 85% of the time, and so we think benefiting and sharing in the hard work and creativity and innovation of people around the globe is a smart way to, to make money, and it should always be a cornerstone. I can get into valuation and what times are better or worse, but that's view one. View two is we we still believe in active returns, and you know, you this is um, there's lots of wars around whether passive or active. We believe that if you can find managers that are aligned with you, oftentimes boutique managers, managers that have an investing structural edge, um, you can make money on the active side in most asset classes. And so if you look at our portfolio, there's more active than there is passive. We have made money on hedge funds, made money surprisingly in the long only U.S. large cap space. I know that that's heresy to some, but if you if you're doing it, so that's our second view is that you you can make money on the active side, um, and then the third view is we do believe in in illiquidity. We believe that there's some things around the private equity market that have led to some structural advantages. Now the constraint on private equity is um, is how much illiquidity a particular client can bear and what are their spending needs and their operational results. But we like lots of things about the alignment of interest between general partners and their portfolio companies and limited partners. And particularly in the lower middle market, there are opportunity to increase operational results, particularly in the venture capital market, the persistency um, of returns from great general partners from fund to fund is really, you know, it's it's awesome, the, the amount of persistency that you can find in, in these managers. So on a long-term basis, uh, we continue to allocate capital. You can have lots of debates. Is leverage too expensive now? Is there too much money chasing too few deals? The last thing I'll say, Chaz, is I started doing private equity in 2002 and actually was a leveraged finance banker for two years before that. So it 1998, and every single year I've heard too much money chasing too few deals. So I'm <laughs> certain it will be right. But <laughs> 25 years later, if you missed the last 25 years in private equity, I suggest, I would submit you probably re, uh, regret it.
0: Yeah, uh, I, I won't disagree with that. There have certainly been um, some top quartile and better leading firms and some really what, what I would call consistent results, multiple funds in a row. And yet, and this will maybe take us into our final topic, Kane. the amount of money and the number of competitors that are vying for firms like yours, um, wealth management companies, alternative oriented investment companies is staggering. It's absolutely greater than I have seen by a factor at any time in my nearly 40-year career. So, yeah, we do think a lot about what's going to happen here. What about the firms, um, the private equity and investment uh, businesses that are taking on three, four, five plus times leverage uh, debt to EBITDA? What about the firms that are paying 10, 15, 20 plus times EBITDA for businesses that they are looking to capitalize on in the next, let's be generous, seven to 10 years. They'd really like to do it much sooner than that, as you know, in the private equity realm. I think that there's a lot of challenge in trying to accomplish those goals in light of the current markets um, and what those, what those assumptions underlying those investments um, will pan out to be as we all know. Assumptions are never right. You you model and you, know, you hope that you've given yourself guardrails and, and a good feeling for it. But you know, looking at the quote commercial uh, OCIO business because I think as you and I know, Kane, yeah, there might be hundred plus commercial institutional OCIOS, but in fact, there are many more such businesses as you and I have talked. We're Getting close to investing in a seven ish billion dollar, effectively OCIO company that only serves ultra high net worth clients. You know, clients generally uh, with 50 to 500 million dollars uh, of investable capital with them. So they function somewhat more like institutions. But I, I would say that there clearly are a number of firms um, who I, I don't think should be named in this podcast that have absolutely underperformed their own expectations and and probably their employees uh, and leaders expectations in terms of basic scale and position in the in the business um, and the ability to be more successful. And it's become a bit of a grab bag with private capital, uh, you know, despite um, uh, tight money. I mean, (laughs) there's no shortage of capital. Everywhere you can turn, and I'm sure many have called on you uh, and tried to and try to get their capital behind you to go out and acquire more. The, the acquisition game is one that um, kind of Rosemont lives in daily and sees as the primary um, the primary driver in most people's minds of how they're going to achieve their five and ten year plans. Whereas organic growth, which you know going back some time used to be much more kind of the stalwart and primary means of achieving one's own plans. And I think there was more trepidation and more concern as to whether acquisitions would really work out. And as you know well, Keen, from your own background, even before you got to TIFF, there are so many acquisitions, which when you review them closely, five or 10 years hence, many of the people have left. A lot of the value hasn't been realized. The grandest intentions uh, didn't come to pass. that That's my kind of perspective on the world today. W- what is yours, kind of looking at the market and thinking about how you're going to grow TIF from here on out?
1: Well, I agree with what you said um, about organic growth. As we look at TIF today, we think we have a phenomenal opportunity in front of us. Um, for us, it's it's really been, when I came to TIFF, I said, I said to the team, so you do all the hard things really well, like having extraordinary investment culture and investment results, having a cohesive team, having a unique position in the marketplace that's, that's genuinely unique around serving predominantly endowments and foundations in this advisory board. And some of the easier things like marketing and, and sales and letting, letting people know that, We no longer have, you know, it's been 20 years since we offered a single fund solution. But, you know, you know, people have day jobs so they don't focus on what we do every day. And so but it's been two decades, you know, (laughs) Um, and so getting that message out. So I do think for TIFF, we have a phenomenal organic opportunity and hopefully we can, you know, continue to deliver the investment results and take advantage of that. On the inorganic side, look, I think the cost of providing this service just goes up. Meaning, like you can see, all the things that are coming out of the SEC—you know, seventeen different rules this year. Um, some of the AI initiatives and technology initiatives, cybersecurity, the type yeah. of reporting people want on, on online. So, I do think there's value in some consolidation and and sharing the cost of of service provision. For from from personal experience, at least, the acquisition that I think that worked the best are ones where you're. Adding a service or a capability that you lack that would take you a long time to build, um, and and it's better to just do it together as opposed to just kind of more of the same or bigger. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, right. we're we're one month into having equity and and having an acquisition exactly. currency. We, we certainly didn't go through all of the. Um, you know, the, the structure we, we did to sell ourselves, so on, on taking inbound phone calls, we're not really taking those. You know, <laughs> um, we're, yeah. we're focused on running our business. But on the acquisition side, um, we do think there's an opportunity for consolidation. And if anything that would make sense to us would probably be something that would add capabilities or to be really, you know, Frank, all places that have 70 employees have key person risk. You just can't have nine people, you know, a, a bench of nine people. So if there's an opportunity to kind of do further on on uh, employee um, retention and building a bench, that would be something that we would look at. But as I said, we're we're a month into it, and you focus a lot more on the acquisition side than I do. I know you know it better than I.
0: Well, as you can tell, um, I and and my colleagues at Rosemont we're just a bit leery uh, of what can actually happen, like kind of what comes out the other end, five, 10 years post <laughs> the, the best laid plans. And so at Rosemont, you know, we just try to be super intentional and super deliberate and get to know our potential partners extremely well. I suspect you'll do the same. I think the other thing, um, Kane, that you basically inferred, which I think is a big plus for TIFF, is that a smaller organization, which would bring complementary capability um, and or uh, service to TIFF would not, I would hope, would not be seen as, quote, selling out to TIFF and kind of you know, handing in the keys and kind of giving up on their independent employee-owned dream. Just the contrary. I think what they would see now in TIFF is an opportunity to join a larger aligned employee-owned business, which gives them more of an arsenal and, and is a uh, more appealing to their clients and their prospects. So I think the right deals are buying into something, not selling out to something.
1: I I I hope you're right. It makes sense to me. And, you know, if there are people listening to this podcast, I would love to join the <laughs> family, either as a client or as a manager or as a partner, you know, give us a call.
0: Well, you, you know, you and I will be talking about this subject matter Um Probably quite a bit for years to come, and we're right down the road, so uh, it's easy to strategize and talk shop. But I do want to pick up though on one thing you said earlier, King, um, and that, and 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 I'm you know half uh, smiling when I say this: uh, marketing is not the easy part. <laughs> With no disrespect to the investment side, which obviously is critical in an investment-centric business, but as we found over time, and, and I think you're finding really good sales and marketing efforts are actually much more rare than people think. And that becomes a distinguishing functional expertise that I think investment-centric shops have disrespected for too long. I'm not saying that you have. I'm just saying that at Rosemont, we have seen the value of folks that put uh, sales and marketing and client service in an extremely high currency in their business. And I know you do, but no, just yeah. share the Want point of view.
1: No, you you you're spot on it. And I've always said actually the the client facing person for OCIO is actually a very difficult position to hire for. You need someone that is a sophisticated investor or former investor who likes working with clients thinking about the right strategic asset allocation, um, can answer any question about any market. When you have 100% of someone's money, and, you know, when you're when you are the O.C.I.O. and they want to ask you a question about any geography, any asset class, any current view, like, um, what's going. You know, you better know who you know who just won the Speaker of the House yesterday, because if you know, you better know where the tenure is and you better know where, you know, the China stock markets are trading. Because any question where you have 100 percent of someone's money, if you don't know the answer, you lose a lot of credibility. You are their CIO. And so someone that's that good at the markets. Also very good EQ. As I said, these these relationships are kind of like a marriage. Yeah. And so like yeah. understanding different, there's d- different people in the investment committee often that have different views, navigating that. It really is a tough. So I, I I shouldn't have been, I shouldn't have said that it's easy. Uh you're right. You're you're absolutely right. It's a hard, it's a harder position than I let on. Investing, you know, alpha's equally hard. I'll leave it at that. Get, actually, delivering alpha is hard. Uh, but you're right, client facing is hard
0: as well. I will not disagree with that. Well, Kane, it's been a pleasure. I'm glad that we finally got to do this and uh, look forward to seeing you soon and appreciate you coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you, Chaz. Thanks so much for having us. We really enjoyed it.